I'm uh, Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. I welcome you all. We've got a couple of uh, empty chairs at the table. You're welcome to come take them. You'd be invited uh, if you're students especially. We'd love for you to join us at the table. It is my great pleasure to have uh, Diana Enriquez, Enriquez uh, with us today. Diana is not only a uh, superb journalist, um, a, I think it's not unfair to say a relentless <laughs> investigator and is the winner of the uh, Goldsmith Prize. Uh, her picture <coughs> is on our wall if you were uh, have walked around mm -hmm. here. But she is also a very uh, uh, much admired colleague of mine from the time when I was at the New York Times. And, one of the best things about the New York Times is that you never really leave. You are, you are, you are it's, like being, it's like being a Marine. There's a chip they put in your brain, actually. <laughs> uh, and Diana has uh, made a spectacular career for herself at the, at the New York Times. Her most recent uh, blockbuster is a book on uh, the Madoff case, which she covered for the New York Times, in which she wants to talk about in journalistic terms today. Um, we were having a spirited conversation a few minutes ago about it, and I will be interested to hear uh, what your reaction is to her thesis. Um, in any event, uh, Diana, it's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you. Welcome. Always, always a delight to come back here. I was a little shocked at how long it had been when Edie extended this invitation. My apologies also to any of you who had planned to see me earlier when JetBlue failed to uh, take off from Newark and left me stranded there on the tarmac long past the time I was supposed to be here. So I apologize for disappointing you once and hope I won't disappoint you today. Um, the Madoff story um, uh, has, has been one of the most absorbing criminal scandals I've ever covered. Um, not just because he was such an atypical Ponzi schemer, though he certainly was, um, he, but also because of what it showed us about some timeless uh, tendencies among investors, among families, uh, among regulators, among, uh, within society itself, some timeless tendencies about how we look at the con artists in our midst and what gives them the power that they have. Um, I like to say in some of my speeches that you know, a shifty-eyed drifter in a cheap suit may commit any number of crimes. He may break into your house, he may steal your car, he may hold you up at knife point, but a Ponzi scheme will never be one of the crimes he will commit. Um, because a Ponzi schemer must first win your trust and then steal from you. And that makes it such a distinctive crime, such an uh, uh, intriguing crime. Uh, of all fraudsters, con artists are the only ones that you can guarantee know their victim. They have earned their victim's trust, or they can't <coughs> steal from them. So uh, Ponzi schemers as a general category, and Bernie Madoff as the biggest, most successful Ponzi schemer in history, um, is, is, is the most intriguing I've encountered. It was the first truly global Ponzi scheme. Typically, a Ponzi schemer's reach only goes as far as his circle of trust, as the people he knows. Madoff was able to hijack the trust that investors had in other institutions, in other people, uh, whether it was a British bank in Dubai or a 
uh, a money manager in Rio and hijack their trust so that people who trusted those remote links in this chain would send their money back up the chain. So I found Bernie himself to be a fascinating figure and one that rewards, I think, a decade of study. I mean, he's just understanding the impact he had and how he had that impact, how he um, blinded his regulators, how he blinded his um, investors, um, how the bankruptcy process of trying to unwind the whole thing is going to turn out. This is, this is a story for the, for the day. That's not what I'm here to talk about today, though. I'll be happy to answer your questions on those topics. But what I wanted to talk to you today about is concerns that I uh, increasingly felt as I look at how the media in general, and I don't like to paint with a broad brush, there are many uh, exceptions to this, but how some people in the media covered the other members of the Madoff family. And the reason I think it's important that we think about that is because there's a, there's a lesson there for the way we cover any unpopular target of public rage. Anything come to mind? <laughs> Current popular targets of public rage? Well, when the Madoff story broke, the instant targets of public rage were Ruth, Mark, and Andrew Madoff. Um, it didn't take long before they were being described in the blogosphere as an organized crime family. Uh, it didn't take long before the assumption was hardwired into much of the tabloid coverage that, of course, they're all guilty. That assumption resurfaced last month when members of the surviving members of the Madoff family, Andrew Madoff and his mother, Ruth, um, made television appearances in um, support of a, a family memoir, that uh, an authorized biography that author Laurie Sandell wrote. Once again, I got uh, hostile and indeed, in one case, anti-Semitic messages uh, attacking Ruth uh, Madoff as a hag who ought to be locked up in the cell across the hall from her husband. Now, if they're guilty, if Mark, Ruth, and Andrew are guilty, then they deserve whatever U.S. justice can meet out against them. There's no evidence to date that they are. So let's have a thought problem. Let's have a little, let's do a little thought experiment here and say they're innocent. Now let's look at how the media covered Ruth, Mark, and Andrew Madoff in the past <coughs> three years almost since Madoff's arrest. I submit to you it's not a pretty picture. It's not a picture that casts a lot of glory or a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, shine on what we do. Lawyers, libel lawyers, who I'm sure have addressed you because Alex is so good at what he does, will tell you that there is such a thing as a libel-proof person. There is a libel-proof subject. Anyone know what a libel-proof, what renders you libel-proof in the legal definitions? You can pull this up off any good legal Wikipedia. No, no, even if you're a public figure, you're not libel-proof. Um, call a public figure a, pedoph a pedophile and see how quickly you get, get sued. Um, 
A libel-proof figure is someone whose reputation is already so bad <laughs> that it cannot be damaged further by anything that you can report. Well, that's, that's interesting. That means that Bernie Madoff is truly libel-proof. I think you actually might be able to say that Bernie Madoff was a pedophile and get away with it without libel, although let's not go there. Um, but his reputation is already destroyed, so nothing you could write about him could legally damage his reputation. You can't defame him because of his reputation. Well, very quickly, Ruth, Mark, and Andrew became de facto libel-proof targets. They had no practical way of suing anyone for libel, anything that was written about them. That extended even to other members of the Madoff family. For example, there was uh, an incident where a uh, consultant who specialized in the interesting business of preparing white-collar criminals to do hard time when they were convicted. That was his line of work. Not a bad business at all, right? Uh, growth, a growth industry right now. He managed to sell somebody, I forget whether uh, which one of the financial uh, networks it was, on the notion that he'd gotten an anonymous call from a young-sounding woman who was worried that she was going to go to prison and wanted to see if, if she could set up an appointment to consult with him, and they talked for a while. And from the circumstances he gleaned from this conversation, he had concluded that this woman was Bernie Madoff's niece, his brother's uh, daughter, who worked at the Madoff firm. So, the media went with the story. This guy had his five minutes of fame on TV talking about um, this, about the fact that, uh, that Madoff's niece had sought, uh, was so concerned about her legal jeopardy that she had sought help from this consultant. Madoff's niece was actually in labor having a baby at the time that that phone call was allegedly made. Her lawyers, uh, a press representative notified the two sources that ran with that story that that was the case, that she was having a baby. She was not making a phone call to that consultant. No retractions were run, no corrections were run, and to this day you will find people, I have found people in the course of my reporting for the book, who believe that story is absolutely true. So, <coughs> that's my concern. If you look at how we Covered, how the media, not we, some in the media, I try to avoid the broad brush because I oppose the broad brush. If we look at how some in the media covered those members of the Madoff family, we learn something about the dangers of covering a universally unpopular group of people. And I think those dangers are present, whether the un popular group of people or members of the Madoff family, or whether they're people who work on Wall Street, or whether they were American Muslims after 9-11, or whether they are evangelical Christians in, in, a, in a tough political race. My sense of the media's job is we lean against the wind. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. We're the ballast in the ship. When the, tide, when the wind, the gale of public opinion is pushing everybody 
in one direction. Our sacred obligation is to lean back and say, wait a minute, let's be sure justice is done. Let's be sure the case is proven. Let's be sure we're distingu distinguishing between bystander and, and, uh, um, and guilty. But that's what we're supposed to do. We do it really well, typically, when the targets of public hostility are poor and defenseless. We do it better then. Not, not real well. Go back and, and study how the, the uh, U.S. press covered the internment of Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor, and you will see that we don't always do it very well. But we do it better than we do when the targets of public hostility are wealthy and powerful. Now, you may say, well, the wealthy and powerful can look out for themselves. I think Alex did say something similar to that earlier on, that you know they've got PR people, they've got PR machines, they can look out for themselves. Frankly, I don't think that gets us off the hook. I don't think the fact that the target of unfair reporting has the means to counteract it justifies unfair reporting. So we're looking at a libel-proof person who is libel-proof because they have no reputation left to damage. If they have no reputation left to damage, because of how we've covered them to date. That becomes a vicious circle where we can cover people badly and unfairly and destroy their reputation and therefore render them libel-proof so everyone else can cover them badly and destroy their reputation. So that's, that's the burden on my heart about the, uh, what the coverage of the Madoff family tells us about um, about what we do. That's the fairness issue is one of the issues that concerns me. Second issue I want to raise, because it's more to the craft and less to the ethics, is the power of storytelling. We need to be very careful about um, the stories we, we tell. We decide in the media so often what this story is. And when we frame that story, we're going to determine a lot of how the public's going to react to that story. Stories are extremely powerful. I don't know how many of you have read The Wizard of Oz, but one of the things I tried to do in crafting that book, I, I turned to screenplay guys. I read Joseph Campbell's uh, classic, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I looked to the uh, the wisdom of people who, who write entertainment for a living and learn that if you can tap into one of those great archetypes of folklore, one of those great stories of folklore, the, the little <coughs> templates, the shorthand stories that you will instantly <coughs> recognize, if you can identify which category your story falls in, is this a Cinderella story? If I say Cinderella story to you, you all immediately know what I'm talking about. If I say, is it Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hunter? You immediately know what I'm talking about. So when we decide what the story is, we've put the characters into a particular category, and I think we need to be careful about that because so much of our folklore about white-collar crime, about crime, about fraudsters, is uh, 
admires the fraudster and scorns the victims. Let me read you something. It's from a book called The Big Con, and it's uh, written by David Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R. -E a new issue is out now with a forward by Luke Sante. The Big Con, the story, of con uh, the story of the Confidence Man. It was actually written right before World War II, and it shaped how people thought about con artists for decades. The con artist, says Maurer, is, not real, is really not a thief at all, because he does no actual stealing. The trusting victim literally thrusts a fat bankroll into his hands. It is a point of pride with him, the con artist, that he does not have to steal. Confidence men are not crooks in the ordinary sense of the word. They are suave, slick, and capable. Their depredations are very much on the genteel side. In the mad frenzy of cheating someone else, the victim is unaware of the fact that he is the real victim carefully selected and fatted for the kill. Thus arises the trite but nonetheless sage maxim, you can't cheat an honest man. That has shaped how people think about con artists for decades. And it has shaped how they think about con artists' victims. And it shaped how the media thought about Madoff's victims. That you can't cheat an honest man. That's the biggest bunch of hogwash that has ever been uttered about white-collar crime. Honest people get cheated all the time, and they get cheated by people they trust. The cure to that is clinical paranoia, and you don't want it. But that attitude that you can't cheat an honest man and therefore made off some victims were somehow complicit, if not actually the only guilty party, in the whole game, shaped the way the media covered this story. So I offer for a discussion now those two notions, the power of the libel-proof subject, the danger of the libel-proof subject, and the power of the storytelling that uh, victimizes the victims, as two lessons that we really need to study out of the Madoff case because they apply to everything we cover about fraud, everything we cover about um, victimology and how it, how it plays out. Now, I know Alex, for one, disagrees with 90% of what I've said, so I'm ready to take, ready to take questions. I'm, I let me put on my bulletproof vest here. And I would now not I'm say I disagree with 90% of it at all. I think that, who were the, what were those two news organizations that printed that false assertion about the lease? I know one of them was CNBC because they had the guy on. The other was the New York Post. Well, the New York Post, neither one of them surprises me very much. I mean, the point is, there's no question that in a tabloid culture, which is what we live in, uh, and this was a tabloid story from heaven, um, there was going to be a lot of that kind of coverage inevitably. And the web, of course, makes it all the more so. I take your point, and I completely agree that, that uh, you know, the, the news organizations that are responsible, like the New York Times, are ones that have to hold that line. And I think <coughs> that is a, you know, if you had told me that, that someone at the New York Times had done that, I would have been genuinely shocked. Not because it might have happened, but because there was no retraction. The Times, to its 
I believe, great credit, does try to correct its errors in some ways in these Wagnerian kind of you know, epic ways. Uh, but, but I mean, I, I, I of course take your take your point. I think the thing, <clears throat> this interesting question about you can't cheat an honest man. I don't know that what that the Madoff uh, Madoff victims were dishonest, but I really wonder if you, in that kind of a of a of a, of a, of a situation, can completely let his victims off the hook for having some responsibility for what happened to them, simply because they did not exercise what, in retrospect, looks like very obvious, you know, uh, commonsensical due diligence about where they put their money. You know, I know that point of view, and I, I, I want, how many of you have read every bit of fine print on all your investments? Well, I've read every single piece of tiny word. Yeah. Here's the dirty little secret about all that. We don't read it. We, we operate in a regulatory regime that is based on sunlight being the best disinfectant. Full disclosure. Lay it all out there and let the, let the investor make the choice about whether or not they want to invest or not. Here's the truth. Nobody reads it. Everybody invests on faith. I invest in Vanguard on faith. You may invest in TIAA-CREF on faith. Other people invest with Merrill Lynch, Citibank, on faith. And other people invested with Bernie Madoff on faith. Well, and I, that is how we work. Okay, and well, once you trust someone, <clears throat> you don't see the red flag. Well, let me offer a, a, a slight counter-narrative to that. My sense is that most of the people who invested with Madoff, not all, but most, were wealthy, sophisticated people. I know that's and your impression, many, and you're wrong. Many of them, <laughs> many of them, would not sign a contract without having their lawyer read every word. Most of them don't make investments without having someone advising them on their investments. It seems to me that you can realistically expect the lawyer to read the contract, and you can expect the investment advisor to know what the hell they're advise, advising you to invest in. That is something that I think these people, in many respects, did rely on. They relied on people whose job it was to read the five print. In other words, they trusted somebody else. They did. They outsourced their trust, but they still based it on trust. And what happened was the lawyers and the due diligence. I mean, look at the due diligence lawyers for some of these speeder funds. Right. They are criminals, as far as I'm concerned. Well, um, I mean, the things we were talking about, Ezra Merkin. Ezra Merkin is one of the figures in this drama. I don't know how much of you all have, have uh, followed this. In New York, Ezra Merkin was a man who, if there was such a thing as the as the absolute iron or, or pillar of the of the Jewish philanthropic uh, world of New York City, it was this guy. And he was a very successful money manager. He took people's money. He charged them a very stiff uh, management fee and shuffled it all over to Bernie Madoff. And Without telling know, them he, he had done And so. he didn't know any more about what was in Bernie Madoff's portfolio than anybody else nope. did. Nope. But and, he, he took Bernie on faith. Well, I mean, and he lied to his investors. He misrepresented in his, to his investors what he was doing with their money. Uh, he's been sued civilly by the Attorney General in New York and is fighting that case. Um, but he is not typical. They, 
the feeder funds without doubt were the most visible and channeled the most money into Madoff. But the, the number of Madoff accounts, I, I know I have this right, 20% of the Madoff accounts were had a paper value on the eve of Madoff's arrest of less than $500,000. These were the retirement savings of small investors, of middle-income investors, one out of five. <laughs> Nothing in the early coverage, this is why how we framed the story was so important. The early story was Madoff's victims are a bunch of rich plutocrats who had it coming. Or a bunch of rich plutocrats who were criminally negligent in not reading the fine print and protecting themselves. And not one drop of sympathy do we feel for them. There were one out of five of those victims who woke up the morning Bernie was arrested with nothing but the cash in their wallet. And whatever assets were scattered around the house they had mortgaged to invest with Madoff and were going to lose. So that, that mix of the story determined the policy responses to, to the crisis, I mean, to the, to the fact that, that uh, these losses had, uh, had been incurred. So yes, there were many wealthy people who lost a great deal of money. There were some middle-income people who lost everything. So what mattered was how much you had left, not how much you lost. I was just, all I'm saying is that I think that there is a, you know, there's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing to calculate where the responsibility is in a situation like this. If, obviously, you have to go through life being able to, to trust some people. You have to trust the full faith and credit of the <laughs> government of the United States when you handle right. money, period. Right. But I think that the idea that you could have paid someone who had, there's no one in, I think, in New York City that had a more stellar reputation than Ezra Merkin. People trusted him without question. <clears throat> and without reading the fine print. Well, I mean, did he do what the fine print said he was going to do, or was he cheating? It seemed to me that he was basically utterly duplicitous. He was just someone unworthy of, <laughs> of, of, of trust that got that trust. And what is so fascinating about the Madoff story? And we could sit here and talk about Ezra Merkin all afternoon. He's one of about 13 fascinating characters. Mm -hmm. Different kinds of victims that Madoff uh, attracted. He is one, and the facts set that surrounds Ezra Merkin is fascinating to me. It's going, seeing how he fares, where he comes out the other side of the scandal is going to be, going to be really, really interesting to me. But if you look at other hedge funds, if you look at other investors, like the Shapiro family, for example, or the Levy family, or others, then you see a different a completely different fact set and history and relationship with Madoff that would raise different questions about what what personal responsibility they had. Now, ultimately, you could say anyone who invests with a Ponzi schemer has to has to take personal responsibility for having made that mistake. But having said that, the skillful Ponzi schemer's job is to win your trust and to get your money out of you. One uh, great analyst who I, I've been quoting recently said the greatest analysis of uh, a Ponzi scheme mentality I've ever seen. He said, if it sounds too good to be true, you're all nodding, right? You're dealing with an amateur. 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 Think about it. Uh, let me open this up. Uh, just over here first. Um, I, w I wanted to ask um, about in this when you're talking about narratives and conventionally, uh, you know, these sort of conventional uh, narratives and assumptions that people make, uh, Madoff, as I understand it, um, was, you know, had a stellar reputation uh, within the financial world and also among journalists. And I think that he, I, I think I, I've heard you say that you used him, that he was a great source of yours. He was a source of mine. He yeah. was not a, a frequent source of okay. mine. His trading desk was very, very useful to me over the years. And then on the other hand, You've got, I, 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 once again, correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that one of the people who early on blew the whistle on him was, a, a, I think, a short seller or a hedge fund guy who was, uh, who was trying to call the attention of the, S, uh, the, of the SEC to this, who was... I think, do, are you, do you mean uh, Harry Markopoulos? Could be, yeah. yes. Uh, he was a quantitative analyst, okay. not, a, not a short seller. But from what I've heard is a sort of a paranoid... Uh, Kind of character. Harry, I know, and, yeah. and he doesn't trust many people. No. Okay, so he maybe doesn't. He won't come. He won't be played by uh, Kevin Costner or whatever in the, in the movie version. And so that's that. You, you've got that disconnect between, on the one hand, the well-dressed, uh, you know, guy who's who, who everybody loves, who's who's uh, who's very charismatic and, and acceptable, and yes, and and deep in, and then on the other hand, you've got this maybe kind of more of an outsider guy who, like many whistleblowers. A little squirrely, a little odd, and yeah. didn't inspire conf didn't inspire confidence. I, I, you're absolutely right. And, and so, that, from the perspective of you as a journalist, how do you? How well, do you, I, you know, I've dealt with a lot of whistleblowers, and I, I don't. I think journalists are less likely to make that mistake than regulators are, for example. Because I think every journalist who's ever had dealt with a whistleblower knows that they're they're really strange people. You know, they're really weird people. Um, I wish Harry had called me. But Harry had it in his mind that he was only going to deal with one journalist, uh, the, the wonderful John Wilkie at the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau. <coughs> well, only dealing with John Wilkie raised all kinds of practical problems. Number one, Wall Street wasn't his beat. Number two, he was in Washington. Number three, he was in the middle of the last uh, fabulous work he was doing, uh, uh, the last body of work that he did before he died of pancreatic cancer. And, um, and Mothership, Wall Street Journal, is back home, and Bernie Madoff is on their turf. Mm -hmm. So you had all kinds of in internal issues that are raised. And even Harry's friends, according to emails that I've seen that were uh, handed over by Harry, who just did a huge document dump to the uh, House Committee before whom he testified, there are emails in there in which his friends are saying, go to somebody else. You know, go to the New York Times, go to Mike Sikhanoffi, go to Jenny Anderson at the Times. My name wasn't mentioned. I'm a little, <laughs> little put out about that, but you know. Uh, but yeah, but go take it somewhere else. And if he had, he would have been listened to. He would have been respected for what he knew. If you go back and read what Harry actually submitted to the SEC, and they're included as appendices in his book, which is called Nobody Would Listen. I've read the whole thing. I recommend it to you. It is the autobiography of a totally unself-reflected person. <laughs> <laughs> for, exa for example, it, he, tells the he tells you the story. He tells you the story about how, uh, about his favorite joke about the SEC, which he would tell at the SEC. Um, and the joke went like this. 
My apologies in advance. It is crude and tasteless. Do you know the difference between a male SEC lawyer and a female SEC lawyer? No? The male SEC lawyer can count to 21, but only if he unzips his trousers. <laughs> Harry seemed to think that this <coughs> would endear him somehow yeah. to people at the SEC. And you know, just sort of all of us here joking together. Um, so, yeah, you know, the, the, the tendency to mistrust the odd, squirrely little whistleblower and to deeply trust the polished, accomplished Wall Street statesman that Bernie Madoff was, was at the heart of the SEC's failure mm -hmm. of imagination. Um, one of the hardest parts of the Wizard of Oz to write was the, were the descriptions of the SEC's massive failures in this case. It is not true, as Harry likes to say, that he tried to blow the whistle and the SEC did nothing. It would almost have been easier if they had done nothing. They didn't. They launched five investigations and they fumbled every one of them. And it's like watching the Titanic head towards the iceberg. You just keep wanting to say, turn, 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 make that phone call, send that letter, and they stop just short of the step that would have revealed the Ponzi scheme, in part because they never imagined he was running a Ponzi scheme. They thought he was front-running. Front-running is a form of insider trading that he was uniquely positioned to commit because of this huge flow of orders coming into his legitimate brokerage business. Um, a legitimate brokerage business, by the way, that was conspicuous in its absence from the big nasty <coughs> price-fixing scandal of the mid-1990s. 28 Wall Street firms, all the blue-chip Wall Street firms, settled with the Justice Department. One. $100 billion, something like that. Gigantic settlement with the Justice Department for fixing prices on over-the-counter stocks. Madoff's firm was one of the 10 biggest traders in NASDAQ stocks. Never sued. I was so suspicious about that that I tracked down the private litigator. who That, that was a case where the um, class action lawyers got there well ahead of the regulators. They saw a study that was done out of Vanderbilt that raised academic analytical questions about why the spread on NASDAQ stocks is never any smaller than this. And that, that you know, statistically that was impossible. They took that suit, they filed the lawsuits, tracked down the original. I said, did you ever, did you just not bother with Bernie? What, you know, did you settle, I mean, why wasn't Madoff's firm in there? He said, no sign that they were ever involved. So. If you were investigating Madoff, you knew he was whistle clean in the biggest scandal to hit NASDAQ in a decade or more. You knew that his legitimate brokerage house never had more than a technical ding to go with it. And what rumors were you hearing? He's front running because he's positioned to front run. He puts in an order for his private clients when he sees a big flow of orders coming in. And then when that flow of orders pushes the price up, he sells for his private clients and gets that little profit for them. And that's how he does it. That was the whisper all over Europe. All those bright hedge fund managers who got into Madoff late 
that was what they were chattering about at the over the champagne uh, was yeah it's front running he's front running they were right that he was a criminal they were wrong about the crime and they were really wrong about who the victim was have you got the uh, <clears throat> liberty to <clears throat> say who is considering seriously playing the part of Bernie Madoff? I do, actually. <laughs> it's public now. I've, I've, I've known it for some time, but HBO has confirmed that they're negotiating with Robert De Niro to play uh, Bernie Madoff. <laughs> 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 he actually will be great. Do you have any other parts cast? No, 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 no. And I don't have one so far as I know. Uh, but that it's that's still in the planning stages. HBO has options. I just watched Angel Heart with Robert De Niro last night where he played Mephistopheles for this big one rung down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, uh, De Niro is is superlative uh, if you if you subtract all of the comic roles. He's superlative at a character that has this highly polished, uh, seamless surface with this great turbulence going on underneath. You think of Raging Bull. I mean, this, this was a stoic, almost mute, I mean, almost inarticulate. Box who had all this enormous emotional life going on, and that's that's the Madoff I met, and that's the Madoff that uh, comes through in the in this story. So I hope it, I hope it goes forward, but Richard. it hasn't. Yet. So uh, I assume that Angelina Jolie will be cast as a prominent New York Times reporter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to this movie. So. I was just hoping for Susan Sarandon. This I'm is a great for Angelina Jolie and settle for Susan Sarandon. <laughs> You, you've talked about stories, and you've also talked about Madoff, and you talked about unfairness. And as you were talking, I was thinking about Reinhold Niebuhr's book, Moral Man and Immoral Society, which he wrote at the early part of the Second World War. And he calls on us to distinguish between scales of morality, where it is the case that individuals acting alone or in small groups can behave and be judged in certain ways, and individuals acting collectively and growing by scale uh, not only behave differently, but need to be judged differently. So for me, I'm not interested in Bernie Madoff uh, as Bernie Madoff. I'm sorry for his family if they're being unjustly accused. But he, to me, is a synecdoke of the Wall Street collapse, an early warning sign of what was about to befall not just Wall Street but the nation and the world economically, from which there have been many, many more painful disasters by people who were authentically innocent. I mean, UNICEF says five million children under the age of five are going to die annually because of lack of drugs and alike as a consequence of this economic meltdown. And here in the U.S., we've got 20% 20, 20 of U.S. homeowners, you know, underwater with their mortgages and another 10 or 15%, you know, in foreclosure or headed toward it. So why should we be looking at Bernie Madoff? And why should we be worrying about the coverage of Bernie Madoff? I mean, I just came off of two years working in Greece, and i got to tell you, bad story framing was killing the Greeks because they were turned into wastrels and lazy bastards. And not, almost none of it was true. There were serious problems. But that frame, which the press stuck with, uh, stuck with without deviation for two years, the last two years, has been in part a real reason why they're in the mess they're in today. They can't get relief from the markets because the press won't give them another, a narrative other than <coughs> they've screwed it up, they'll screw it up again, you know, make them pay. I appreciate hearing about that application of this, the power of storytelling to frame it's a horrible. policy outcome. Yeah. Why should you care about Bernie Madoff? Two reasons. First of all, let me just um, let, let me differ with uh, what has become a very common uh, conflation of, uh, of topics. Madoff was not a function of the bubble decade. 
He didn't cause the bubble. He benefited to some extent from it. But the only real connection between, there are two connections between the, the financial meltdown of 2008 and the events that led up to it and the Madoff scandal. One of them is that the financial scandal was what finally capsized Madoff's Ponzi scheme, which had probably been going on for at least two decades and maybe even longer. But that's what finally capsized it, so that was, the, that was a causal link. The other is that both of those two crises did, were, had their roots in frightened investors putting their trust in the wrong places. So that, there is that analogy. But Ponzi schemes do not require bubbles. We have Ponzi schemes in good times and bad. We have had them for centuries before Carlo Ponzi put his name on them. We are, in fact, right now harvesting the first vintage of post-Madoff Ponzi schemes. These are Ponzi schemes that started after Madoff's arrest, flourished through the Great <clears throat> Recession, through the worst economic times we can remember, um, and, and then collapsed. So there, there, is, there is no uh, necessary connection between the events that led to the financial meltdown of 2008, important to study, critical, and as was pointed out, affecting the lives and welfare of millions, if not, if not hundreds of millions of people, <coughs> and Bernie Madoff. Well, let me push back on that one point because it's very important. I would argue that the series of failed SEC investigations was in fact a sign of how underfunded, understaffed, and politically misdirected much of America's financial sector regulatory system but, has been for the last 25 years. But you didn't, but you didn't years. need that. No, no, I understand, that. but I, I was trying to make a causal, necessary connection. In 2001, 2002, and 2003, the GAO sent <clears> to Congress three inflammatory, angry, upset analysis of the turnover rate at the SEC. They said the, the rate had reached such enormous levels that it was jeopardizing the agency's ability to carry out its mission. Those are cited in, in the notes to the Wizard of Lies. You can track them down. Um, oh, this is just dreadful, says Congress, wringing its hands. It did absolutely nothing to fund the SEC. So senior lawyers continued to leave for high-paid jobs on Wall Street. Raw recruits were all they could afford to hire. So you wind up with Madoff being investigated in part by a young woman who had been out of law school 19 months. So, yes, but you didn't need Madoff's, the failure of the SEC's investigation of Madoff to tell us that we were underfunding our regulatory regime. Let me distinguish again. For those in the know, that's true. For the broad American public to be mobilized to the degree that you could actually push Dodd-Frank through the legislature, that was not true. We needed a meltdown of this size. Again, I don't want to claim that Bernie triggered this. Obviously not. That's not true. I'm just saying I find Bernie interesting only in passing as kind of collateral damage of this larger issue, which I think is, I'm just surprised that. Madoff's yeah. fall mm -hmm. from, the, from the headlines of the fall of 2008 for me. Take it out. Imagine everything else happened but that. Okay? GM in bankruptcy, mm -hmm. AIG and the breakup, all of that happened. Now, is anything that you're concerned about different? No. Every single thing that you are worried about, every single thing that has, that has sparked your concern and your questions remains exactly the same. 
It was a massive regulatory failure. It was a massive failure of imagination on the part of policymakers. It was a massive excessive <coughs> All of that is true whether or not Madoff was part of the story. He became part of the story and was, in many cases, misused as part of the story, lending to the notion that if you're going to write about Madoff, you have to put him in the context of the events of that fall. Madoff almost failed in the fall of 2005. I count this, this internal cash crisis that he had that none of us knew about in the fall of 2005. He had received redemption requests for $105 million. He had $13 million left in his bank account. If he covered those redemption checks, the Ponzi scheme would have collapsed that week in 2005 when things were fine, when every other hedge fund in the world was thriving and happy. So if he had failed then, the price tag would have been a little lower. Uh, there wouldn't, it would not have been $64.8 billion in paper losses. It would have been less than that. It would have still been the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. It would still have been covered as the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. But it not, would not have been conflated with the events of the fall of 2008. So uh, if you're interested in the events of the fall of 2008, I agree with you. Madoff is a footnote. My appeal for why you should care about Madoff is there is another Ponzi schemer within 10 miles of where we're sitting right now. There is another Bernie Madoff who is in, waiting in the wings. Man, we're sitting in the Alfred Taubin building. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about I'm talking about undisclosed Ponzi schemes. Sorry about the that. ones we haven't read about yet. There we go. And that's why you need to understand how Ponzi schemes work, how durable they are, who it is who carries them out, who it is who falls prey to them, and what we can do about it. Um, uh, so I mentioned to you earlier, I study stories and, and share uh, your strong uh, belief in their power. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm very or positively disposed towards the argument. I, 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 it seems to me, though, that um, I was, I, it struck me that your emphasis was, was sort of, uh, I found curious, and in fact, I think it misses the real, the real significance of what you're talking about. So to, just to push that a little bit, one, I, 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 I'm sorry for the family, too. I don't, you know, that's, it's, to me, that's unfortunate, but I don't know what the broader meaning of that is. Um, and I'm not, and, and the question, uh, uh, the question about whether there, we should worry about the victims and what their degree of culpability is is, is, is certainly interesting. Uh, I'm not, but I'm not sure that's the main point, and I don't think it's per se that there's another Ponzi schemer out there, although that's an important issue. It seems to me that the actual, the significance of this is is considerably larger in the in the following sense. Um, what you see, the, the story you're telling is a story about the power of story. That is to say, very specifically, con men gain confidence and trust through story. That's how they do it. They write a script. They write a script, and they're incredibly attuned to telling a story that they judge will resonate with you, that you're that you're a sucker for, that you, and. 
Um, and I, I, we are all vulnerable to that. And and it's not just the the con, but as, as you tell the story, all the way all the way down the line, everybody is making judgments on the basis of he's, he's conning these people. They're conning other people. Down the line, people are making judgments at every level, um, on the basis of relatively little information, on the basis of how it's framed. And and once you're locked into a frame, it's darn hard to pop out of it. So to me, this is a is a great story about the power of story that has very broad implications about not just Ponzi schemes, but our politics. Obviously, so, I, so, I agree with you, know, you so, that... Uh, so that I'm less worried about, I mean, to, you know, about the Ponzi schemers per se, although I recognize this is a, a significant problem, but, but you know, I would take, you know, Newt Gingrich or to be nonpartisan John Edwards, uh, you know, these, you know, these people are, you know, they're con milters, you know, and, 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 and it works, at least for a period of time. Uh, and then the larger question then is how do we defend ourselves against these things? How does, how does a society do it and then what is the role of journalists? And, One and of the whole, reviewers of, uh, of the book said that it, it was a, a testament to the, um, the unlimited capacity, the unlimited human capacity for self-deception. Mm -hmm. And the final line of the book, I won't give anything away if I quote it yeah. to you, is that uh, one of the timeless lessons of the Madoff scandal is that in a world of lies, the most dangerous ones are those we tell ourselves. Because the, the lies that we tell ourselves as a society, as individuals, um, are, uh, are the lies that get us inevitably into trouble. Understanding how Ponzi schemes work and the role of self-deception. The person that Bernie most successfully lied to was Bernie. Uh, the, 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 you know, he believed he could get away with this. I mean, a Ponzi scheme is inevitably the opposite of the perfect crime because eventually you run out of money. It, it can't be. Um, it, it, it can't be sustained forever. Um, but understanding the capacity for self-deception, uh, I think, is the primary lesson to take away from people like Curry Madoff and the crimes that he commits. How, how many of you have done that little uh, video game, uh, test the invisible gorilla? Everybody know about the invisible gorilla? No. It's a, it's a cognitive function test that originated here at Harvard, and it's really great. And now I'm going to spoil it for you by telling you the outcome so you can't go to the fun websites and see if you can pass the test yourself. Um, a film clip of about seven or eight minutes, I think, about that, of two basketball teams, one in white uniforms, one in black uniforms, and they're playing a, playing a very high-paced basketball scrimmage. Where they're, and your job as the test taker is to count how many times the team in white passes the ball. And so you're intently watching this video. Oh, there's one, there's one. Intently watching those passes. And you get to the end and you're so proud because you look at the other guy, I got more than he did. I got more than he did. And then the test giver will say, did you notice anything unusual during the basketball game? No, no, really. You didn't notice, for example, the gorilla. <laughs> A student in a full-body gorilla suit walked onto the court, faced the camera, your chest for dramatic effect, and walked off on 
camera for maybe six or seven seconds out of this seven or eight minute video. And a, a, a percentage that in many cases exceeded half, but always approached half of the test takers, including several people who have been in audiences of mine who took the test before they came to hear me and said, I flunked. They did not see the gorilla. Could have passed a lie detector test on the, on the proposition that there was no gorilla. Once they knew there was a gorilla and they played the film for them slowly, there she was. How on earth did I miss it? That's part of what we need to understand about ourselves, is that when we are intently focused on one view of reality, Bernie Madoff is this Wall Street statesman who, will, who is managing my money and letting me sleep at night because he's so safe and conservative. When we're so focused on one reality, we're not even going to see any contrary evidence that challenges that reality. So understanding that we work that way is essential, I would suggest, to a regulatory system. Uh, you know, I think we need to think about whether or not a full disclosure regulatory system works in, a, in the real world of investors that we have, um, or whether we need to, to find some better way to do it. But, but understanding how we approach these, these stories is part of what makes that just, important. Just add, I think uh, journalists are not necessarily exactly. better at this. And, uh, oh, wouldn't that be fun to have <laughs> a group of journalist <laughs> test takers and it, right? Seeing through the story. And, yeah, I mean, first of all, I disagree with you that the job of the press is to lean against the wind of public opinion. The job of the press is to tell the truth. Sometimes public opinion is right. But I have another question for you, which is, what is your relationship to the Madoff family, and what was the cooperation that they gave you? And, and would that in any way color what you're saying to us today? Um... My relationship to the Madoff family is that they are people I have interviewed and written about. I am, to some extent, I, well, obviously I am Bernie Madoff's biographer. Um, to the extent that they are characters in that, in, in Bernie Madoff's story, I am their biographer as well. So that is my relationship to the Madoff family. I am the biographer of the Madoff patriarch and relied on information about them to help populate that story. I have interviewed Ruth Madoff and Andrew Madoff in the past month, and so they are people I have interviewed. Um, I would not say that my relationship with them, therefore, is any different than any reporter's relationship with the CEO they have profiled, with um, a politician they have covered through an election race, with um, a, um, a local mayor that they have that they've come to know. Um, it's it has all the uh, pitfalls of uh, any of those relationships in terms of access and in terms of um, fairness and in terms of cooptation. I think I navigated them fairly well. Um, there were absolutely no preconditions to my interviews with Madoff. Nothing off the table. No. He had no editorial review of anything I wrote. In fact, he, he did give me a review after the book came out um, of what he thought of it. Um, we are in disagreement about many of, the t of, those, of those points. I do not buy in the book that the fraud began when he said it 
does, and he still sends me letters and emails challenging that. Um, not, when I interviewed uh, Ruth and Andrew last month, again, there were no ground rules. There was nothing off the table. There were no limits. There were obviously no compensation whatsoever for any of these people to agree to talk with me. Uh, so, you know, from my standpoint, it was um, as routine as uh, journalism can get, uh, given the character, the nature of the crime and the characters that I that I worked with interviewing. Have you interrogated yourself to whether they might be conning you? <laughs> well, let me see. Did I think Bernie might be lying? To me? No, not Bernie. I don't care about Bernie. I'm not talking about Bernie. I'm talking about his family. Yes. I, I think we all go into any interview like this with a, with a uh, basis of, if you're doing your job correctly, it, with a basis of skepticism. I'm not quite sure I'm understanding the frame of these questions, though. The frame of the question is, you take a very sympathetic view to the Madoff family. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering whether that your relationship with the Madoff family might have colored your sympathy or your view of them, or whether they've conned you. It's possibly. interesting that you they think... They live in a, in a community of con, so you're telling us you are above being conned, mm. that the Madoff family could not con you because you're above that. But I'm asking you whether you interrogated, whether there is a possibility that the Madoff family may have conned you. Well, I suppose that anything is possible. It's also possible <clears throat> that you're wrong. Oh, absolutely. And that you are uh, misinterpreting uh, my relationship with the Madoff family. First of all, you described it. You described me as being sympathetic to them. Why did you conclude that only sympathy could be behind the suggestion that they deserve to be covered fairly? Well, I'm not going to Why is that? Why is that an expression of sympathy? The reason people doubt the Madoff family, at least the sons, and I'm I'm not an expert in this, so I'm going against an expert. But I'm telling you, as a, as I think I probably speak for several people in this room is because these people were in that company. 180 either, people were in that company. Yeah, these are his sons. Mm -hmm. and either they're imbeciles and they don't know what they're doing, or one assumes that maybe they kind of knew what was going on. Now, that's the assumption. You know better than I. You know the mechanism. I don't. My All assumption I'm saying is, is two well-educated sons prove it. of the head of the company. If that's the case, let's prove it. <clears throat> because what I've been hearing for almost three years is this. I don't know anything about the Madoff story. You know a lot more about it than I do, but they must be guilty. Well, have you tried to prove it? Have you have you investigated yes. whether the Madoff sons might have been deeply involved in this or not? Yes, I'll, and I lay out the reasons, largely circumstantial, in my book while I conclude that it is not proven. First of all, Neither the subject, neither of the sons were ever the target or the subject of a criminal investigation. The U.S. prosecutors confirmed that. Both of the sons had, for their entire life until Mark committed suicide, the same defense lawyer representing <coughs> both of them. Any lawyers in the room? Well, if there were, they would tell you that that is highly unethical. If either of those men were the subject or were liable, to criminal prosecution because if they were they needed separate lawyers because the best thing for one of them to do might be to roll over on the other and a single lawyer could not represent them no defense lawyer I knew in New York ever thought the sons were guilty because Marty Flumenbaum represented them from day one and if the prosecutors were misleading 
Flumenbaum, the defense lawyer, into thinking there were no charges against the sons when in secret they were really finding all this evidence and then we're going to ambush him with it. That would have been highly unethical on the part of the prosecutors and could have in fact jeopardized their case legally. So there's one fact in, in you know, not sympathy, excuse me, fact that suggests that the sons didn't know that there was no evidence that tied them to this crime. By this point, the uh, bankruptcy trustee has examined and digitized roughly 11 million pages of documents that were found in Madoff's offices, in the basement of the Lipstick Building, and in the Bulova Building where he had extra storage for, uh, for records. They've been digitized. And the trustee has filed a lawsuit against Peter Madoff, Mark's estate, now, and uh, Andrew Madoff uh, for the recovery of something like $220 million that they received in the form of salary, bonuses, deferred compensation, anything they got for working from for the firm for all of those years, saying that those were the fruits of Bernie's crime and should be returned. In that lawsuit, in contrast to their lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase, for example, or UBS or HSBC where emails that are highly suggestive and highly implicative of the defendants are included, cited as exists. There is not one reference to a piece of paper in that lawsuit that implicates either Mark or Andrew in that crime. That's point number two. Point number three, in this cash crisis that I described earlier where Madoff is down to his last $13 million so the whole Ponzi scheme comes crashing down around his head in the fall of... I examined, thanks to records that the trustee had filed as part of that lawsuit against the sons, all of their transactions with the firm during after the period of time that Bernie is on the brink of collapse. Did they restrain their withdrawals from the firm? Did they stop taking out cash loans from the firm? Did they stop using the family firm as the piggy bank that they had always used? Did Bernie start turning them down for requests for bonuses? What was their use of cash like between the fall of 05 and June of 06 when the money gusher starts coming in from all these European hedge funds and Bernie's out of the woods? Absolutely unchanged from all of the prior years and the year later. Now, I don't know about you, if I'm Bernie and Ruth, Mark, and Andrew, and Peter are all my accomplices, we have a little conclave around the kitchen table somewhere in the November of 2005 when we say, family hold back. I need every million. So no, you're not getting the loan for the house in Nantucket. No, you're not getting your deferred compensation bonus this year so you can invest in some energy company. I'm hanging on to every dollar. We'll talk about it when we see if we made it through. So there, there are circumstances that make it highly unlikely that Mark or Andrew knew, and I examined those. So I'm a little insulted at your assumption that sympathy is behind my suggestion that they were I'm not involved. But um, I based it on voluminous research. There are 50 pages of notes to the Wizard of Lies, and that's what I based my conclusions on, as any good reporter would. 
I have known Diana for a long time. I've never known her not to know what she's talking about. When she says something that, that she does know something about what she's talking about. I, I think that you did misunderstand. I don't think that was a that was not intended as an insulting question. That was intended as a skeptical question. And that's just you know. Well, this is, this, this, I will this, take it as such, and I think skepticism is obviously um, a, a useful tool. I will, I will borrow from the great Tom Friedman and make uh, the distinction between skepticism and cynicism. Skepticism is knowing which questions to answer, to ask. Knowing which questions to ask, and I think I did. I knew which questions to ask, and I satisfied myself with the answers and the results are in my report. Cynicism is thinking you already know the answer. Mm -hmm. With that, we will end. Thank you very much. <laughs>